Welcome everyone to the Open Source at Scale podcast, where we speak to investors, adopters, and practitioners of open source technologies and how they've leveraged these technologies to build uh, next generation applications at scale. I'm your host for today, Tim Palmer, and we are speaking with a very special guest, current Evergen Chief Technology Officer, Nick McGrath. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Cheers, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So Nick, I'm really excited to chat to you today. Um, I thought maybe to kick things off, you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, you know, your career journey over the last 20 years in the technology space, and maybe a little bit about your current role as the CTO at Evergen. Yeah, sure. So a um, bit about me. I've, I've been a software engineer and a, a data engineer for yeah the last 20 odd years, as you say. And so when I started working at Evergen, we started working towards turning the business into a software business, bringing on some excellent engineers and start building a team and start building processes and, and turning the place into a proper software company. And what became pretty apparent was that if we were going to be a fair income software company, then we really needed someone to sort of guide that technical focus and provide that technical focus. And so uh, that's when I became CTO here. Absolutely. And so Nick, I guess that, that brings us nicely into the next point that I want to dig into a little bit more is about the actual software itself. So I know that you guys are, are doing some you know, really exciting things in the energy space. It's super important, the work that you're doing and sort of helping people use energy more effectively and drive a lot of you know, better ways to, to consume energy more generally. Can you maybe just give us a, a bit of an overview of, of how the software works and, and maybe some of the key challenges that the platform seeks to address? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Evergen software started out life uh, as an optimization algorithm, which was developed by the CSIRO many years ago. And what it does is it, it takes in information about um, predicted house load, predicted PV generation, weather predictions, pricing data or tariff data, and formulates an optimal plan for how a battery should operate over the next 48 hours to maximize savings for the person consuming that energy. And what that means is it's all well and good to have an algorithm that sort of works out what the optimal plan is, but at some point you've got to work out how to control the battery to ensure that you can uh, deliver to that plan. Mm -hmm. And so we developed our software around a you know, the house load predictions or the site predictions, the PV predictions, pricing knowledge, weather predictions, and the ability to control a battery. What it meant was that we were able to actually optimize the way that energy is consumed in a home really, really well. But it also means that if you can control a battery and you can tell it to do anything you want, then you can expand your remit then so that you can uh, start looking at controlling batteries in different ways, which actually helps a large number of different people in different ways. So for example, we can control fleets of batteries and orchestrate fleets of batteries to do various things, which can help uh, retailers or distribution companies to do whatever they need to do to you know, either stabilize the grid or maybe take advantage of uh, different trading strategies on wholesale markets and things like that. And as, yeah, I guess energy systems around the world continue to decentralize, the opportunity for getting the software or using our software to be able to control fleets of batteries and getting that into the hand of retailers or traders or uh, distribution networks will become more and more important as 
things evolve. And and so Nick, the you've mentioned when you're making these sort of smarter algorithms, plugging into different metrics like weather, past consumption patterns, um, you know, different market paradigms and, and things like that. I imagine there's there's a lot of external data sources that you got to plug into there and centralize so that you know you can create a meaningful view for your customers. So what are I guess yeah. some of the biggest challenges in orchestrating something like that? Probably the biggest challenges that we've had so far with regards to dealing with all of the the different components that we have is that each battery manufacturer does things in entirely a different way. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so yeah, it's all well and good to be able to uh, try and ingest all of the information from different battery manufacturers, but each one of their APIs is slightly different. The way that they present information is slightly different. The way that they uh, deal with battery commands and the way that you're able to control batteries is slightly different. But mm. we pride ourselves on being able to connect and control you know, loads and loads of different sorts of batteries. And so what it means for us is we need to... <laughs> purpose build or or build a bespoke piece of technology for each and every integration that we have. Mm -hmm. And then we need to try and distill it down into a common denominator uh, so that we can then treat it the same way as we treat every other piece of data that we deal with from other battery manufacturers. So it has its own unique challenges and dealing with each of these companies, which are primarily hardware companies, they're not really software companies. They tend to sort of focus on the hardware of the battery first and or the inverter first, and then yeah, think about the software almost as an afterthought in some mm-hmm. respects. So yeah, dealing with some of these companies and the differences in their paradigms is challenging. Absolutely. I, I can imagine that, that level of customization for each different client, uh, I can can imagine would, would pose its own challenges uh, around, you know, putting having a, a really scalable business model, but um, certainly certainly sounds like it's an important work so i guess leading on from that when when we're actually going to to how you've deployed uh the technology from an infrastructure yeah. perspective and also some of the software decisions you've made to to make this uh, a reality um how have you gone about implementing you know a centralized and scalable and you know importantly cost efficient strategy when it comes to your your technology operations at evergen we took an approach when we were developing our platform that everything should be um, message driven and independently scalable. We took a leaf out of the uh, reactive manifesto uh, for that um, for that architectural decision. And what that meant that uh, was that we, we probably needed to build a system that was um, built around um, a message system, like a, a messaging queue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we did a bit of investigation, uh, myself and the principal architect, we did a bit of investigation around different queuing technologies. And we had a look at um, some of the existing stuff from uh, Azure and from AWS and things like that. But what we decided on was that we wanted to you know, go with open source and we'd both used Kafka before in completely different circumstances. And so we both felt comfortable with it. And we knew that if we decided on a couple of those key pillars early on, like Kafka and Kubernetes and MongoDB and things like that, that we could probably yeah, build an entire platform based on some of those core foundations. So what it means for us is we're receiving telemetry all the time from batteries. That's basically how we work out, yeah, lots of the detail around house load and PV predictions and things 
So we're receiving this telemetry all the time and uh, we use Kafka primarily as a messaging queue so that whenever we receive messages from you know, the thousands of batteries, we just put them onto our Kafka queue and then uh, other parts of our platform, other systems in our platform like Intelligent Control, which is the system that's responsible for producing the optimization plan, it can ingest those, uh, those telemetry items as it needs in its own time and make decisions for the battery and then put them back on the Kafka queue to send back to the batteries in its own time. And it's independently scalable. Yeah, mm -hmm. if it falls down, it doesn't break the rest of the platform. It provides us a lot of robustness, stability, resilience. Yeah, absolutely. And so you mentioned there, obviously, when you're looking to build out this message-based system, you know, event-driven architecture, you looked at the different options available, whether it be through the cloud-native services through Azure or AWS, but you decided that going open-source Apache Kafka was the way to go. So can you maybe just, can we maybe just linger there for a little bit about, yeah. I know that you said that, you know, you and the, the team were comfortable because you had used it before, but can you maybe just speak a little bit about what some of the the key tenants were about Kafka, maybe, you know, more specific terms about why it made such a, a natural choice for, for you guys. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, A, it's cheap. Yeah. yeah <laughs> okay. source technology tends to be. But the other thing is it's almost infinitely scalable if you approach it the right way. As I said, like a few of us had used it before and we were comfortable with the paradigm of, you know, a pool-based system. So mm -hmm. reading messages off the topics themselves and, you know, setting your own offsets and things like that. We were super comfortable with the scalability of it and its resilience. Uh, and, and what it meant was that if we did have services sitting there reading topics and relying on messages and to be able to do their work and they were then you know, passing messages back, we knew that if any of the components failed, they wouldn't have a knock-on effect so long as we mm -hmm. used Kafka the right way and so long as we architected the rest of our platform in the right way. And just looking at the comparison to, as you say, like yeah, Azure is offering or AWS is offering, the paradigm isn't too dissimilar. Like you can always find an equivalent sort of a tool, but what you can't find is a cost-effective equivalent sort of a tool. Yep. And so for us, it just became a bit of a no-brainer, given that we were comfortable with open source technology as, you know, I guess, just full stop, we were just comfortable with open source technology. Mm -hmm. Using Kafka became a no-brainer. And then, and then it became a question of, well, if we're going to start using some of this open source technology, we're going to start using it at a pretty big scale. And how are we going to manage it? Where's our comfort level with how much we're going to manage and what we will and won't concentrate on? Because ultimately, yeah, we want our team to concentrate on building software rather than maintaining pieces of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it became a question of, well, if we choose this technology, how can we ensure that it is resilient? How can we ensure that it is robust? And how can we ensure that it is going to scale with us? And so, yeah, that's probably where, yeah, we started having conversations with um, managed service providers. Absolutely. I think you touch on a couple of really important points there. You know, firstly, around open source software being free to adopt throughout as long as, you know, open source software has been around, you've had developers just you know, start yeah. testing, failing fast. It's got that real ease of adoption because there are no barriers to entry. Then once it starts to trickle, you know, into the organization further, you've got bigger workloads coming on and all of a sudden, 
these open source technologies become a critical part of the business. And then you get to the stage where, as you say, it's free, but the real cost around it is, is around deploying, managing and operating it at scale. I've spoken to a lot of CTOs you know, of, of large enterprises where they see running open source as a risk because there's, there's no throat to choke. There's no enterprise agreement where you can point the finger and, and having a, being able to partner with a specialist sort of managed service provider that will give them that level of comfort and that level of reliability when they reach that global scale is you know, really pivotal and being able to actually make that move to productionizing these open source systems. Yeah, absolutely. That was a huge concern for us because, again, we started out with a pretty small team you know, 18 or so months ago. We did not need the overhead of trying to manage any of these sorts of things ourselves, and we, we didn't want that overhead. So, yeah, finding someone that was willing to sort of take on that burden for us was blessing for us. We needed to do that. The other thing about open source technology is that there might be a bit of a stigma attached to it because it's free. But mm -hmm. the other thing about it is that yeah, these are technologies that were born out of yeah, some incredible places, some incredible software houses. And these are pieces of software built by engineers to solve their very specific problems. And so they're not commercially minded from the get-go. They're, they're primarily like engineer-led and, and they're solving real engineering problems. And as a software engineer myself, I think that it speaks to me and it mm -hmm. speaks to you know, that sort of real engineering approach and um, the purity of what it's trying to achieve. Absolutely. And I think that's a really core tenant of where Instacluster have, have built their business model as well mm -hmm. is around, you know, we're, we're not commercializing these technologies through creating a, a closed source fork of, of the open source software and, and charging a license fee to use it. You know, we're, we're allowing organizations to leverage true open source software but really just plug that gap. You know, the, the big challenge is, as you said, is, is around operating it and managing it and finding those experts in the market is next to impossible. So, you know, because we, you know, InstaCluster manage so many clusters of Kafka, Cassandra, Elasticsearch, it builds a very unique pool of capability quickly. And I think that's what I find when talking to customers and, you know, guys like you around really helping to operationalize it and, you know, partnering with someone like, like InstaCluster becomes a, a kind of natural progression where, you know, as you can say, you can just focus your efforts on building great apps and, and innovating the company. Yeah, 100%. And I guess one of the one of the things that sort of speaks to that is a couple of weeks ago, maybe two or three weeks ago, and I had an email from the tech support there at uh, InstaCluster saying that um, one of our nodes in our cluster had broken and it had gone down. And then... Um, there was a subsequent follow-up email to it suggesting that uh, everything had been fixed and you know, new node had been spun up and everything had happened while I was asleep, which is um, yeah, peace of mind for you. That's that you, you can't buy that sort of peace of mind. I think as a yeah, as a leader in this sort of a business. Absolutely. And so I guess with that as well, how important is partnering with the right uh, solution providers in? allowing Evergen to be satisfied that you can meet all of these security requirements without having to invest into your own security team at Evergen? Well, it's enormously important for us to be able to rely on all of our partners for these, for their security. Ultimately, yeah, any security chain is 
only as strong as its weakest link. And so if any one of our partners and yeah, you know, whether that's AWS or whether that's InstaCluster or Mongo Atlas or someone like that, if, if they've got a security breach, then we've got a security breach. And if one of our partners has a security breach, that's our problem and we need to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So we concentrate on making our software as secure as we can. And yeah, we're ISO 27001 certified. So we've undergone uh, an audit process to make sure that as far as InfoSec is concerned, that you know, we're, we're in good shape. But ultimately, if our partners that we rely on aren't secure, and if they haven't got their house in order, then that reflects poorly on us. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's paramount. It's, it's, it's from the ground up. You know, AWS has to have their house in order. You guys have to have your house in order. And then only then can we start to get our house in order. Absolutely. So Nick, I guess just rounding this one out, we've talked a lot about open source. You broadly have built the the technology landscape at Evergen and using open source. What would you tell others who might be considering you know, adopting open source for their production workloads? And are there any things you would look out for in terms of, of this adoption? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So as you say, there's there's myriad open source technologies out there, but there's a couple of key things I think you should look for. Uh, one of them is, well, where did it come from and what need was it trying to solve at the time and who was the engineering group that solved it? I think what Kafka came out of LinkedIn mm-hmm. and Kubernetes, I think, came out of Google. Like, you know, These are engineering teams that are pretty reliable. And then you have a look at the age of the technology and the adoption of the technology. So again, with those two pieces of kit that I just mentioned, so they're broadly adopted uh, throughout the engineering community. And the reason that they are is because they work and they solve their very, very specific problem. Mm -hmm. Those are probably the sorts of things that I would look for. The other thing is if you can offset the management of those pieces of kit, because they're, they're typically quite complex and as mentioned earlier, you know, they're built by engineers for engineers. And so if you can offset the management of those pieces of infrastructure to experts like, you know, InstaCluster, then all of a sudden you just, you relieve yourself of enormous headaches uh, mm-hmm. when trying to get these things up and running at a production scale and at production stability. Yeah. You all of a sudden get the ability to run the same tech that Google, Netflix, Apple is running as, as a service. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and how good is that? Like, yeah, that's, that's pretty powerful to be able to take away all of the headaches of the infrastructure and making sure that it's tried and tested at a scale that will work for you, given that uh, you can rely on organizations like Netflix and LinkedIn and, and Google yeah. uh, who have actually gone through and done this and tested it at scale. Uh, yeah. And all, all we need to do then is just concentrate on writing the software that we write best, which is you know, for energy systems of the future. Absolutely. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us, mate. It's been a really insightful chat. Before we go, is there any last uh, topics or, or pieces of, of advice you, you'd like to give uh, those listening? Do not discount open source technology because it's free. Mm-hmm. Um, if the fact that it's free and the fact that it's open source is the thing that's holding you back from exploring these technologies, then I think you're doing yourself a disservice. And I think you need to get over that and uh, just look at it for what it is and for the technology that it is and for the, the problem that it solves. The management overhead, as mentioned you know, myriad times today, 
that can be solved by getting people to actually manage it for you and it, and it relieves huge numbers of headaches well nick thanks again so much for, for taking the time to chat it was, it was really great talking to you welcome thanks tim cheers appreciate it